would uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I would like to take us, first of all, to the homepage of our website, which, by the way, Eric has done unbelievable work um, on the website. Um, And we would like to go to our section about us, and it says what to expect. Here's what to expect when you come to Maplewood. Good, good statement here. We sing together. We certainly do. We take communion. We receive an offering. We teach the Holy Bible. We pray together. It's a pretty good description of what we do when we come together, but I want to focus on the second one in particular. We take communion. We do it every service, every Sunday. Dare I ask why? Not only is it okay to ask why, I'm asking you to ask why. Because anything that we do that we don't ask why we do it, I don't mean cynical, why do we have to do, no, I don't mean that. I mean, how, what is the purpose of this? Because if we don't do that, it will end up becoming something we do legalistically or by rote. So as a church, we are wise to always ask why we do what we do. And we're going to do that about communion. Why communion? That's our question today. Let's start by asking, what is communion? What is it? Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. We're going to have communion at the end of the message today. It's just, I, I forgot to, Eric and I are going to share a message and we're going to, Eric and I are committed to one thing about communion too. We, because we do it weekly, we need, it needs to be taught on more regularly than we do. Be, otherwise, we're not going to ask, why do we do this? And if we don't ask, why do we do this? We're going to miss the meaning, the significance, the impact. Probably more than anything, the impact. We just get familiar with it. And we could spit out the words of what it means, but communion is meant to change us and mold us and shape us and overwhelm us with the joy of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the key statement for our purposes here. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this drink, this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's more than one simple purpose for communion, but I can say, what is communion? It's a celebration of the new covenant. I mean, we see it here. Jesus says, this cup is my blood in the new covenant. He says the same thing in the Gospel of Luke. That the cup is his blood that establishes a new covenant. His death was necessary. 
Jesus' death on the cross was necessary to establish the new covenant. And Eric's going to say more about this shortly. He's going to talk about the sacrifice. But the first question we need to answer is, what's a covenant? The reason I know that is because we don't... How often do you talk about covenant? Eric doesn't count. (laughs) How often do you talk about covenants? You know, it's just not a common word. It's not something we do. Um, Right? A covenant is... I mean, I remember the first time I read the Bible, some of the things that were prominent in the Bible, I'm like, I mean... Not part of my world, right? A covenant is a relationship agreement between two or more parties. It's an agreement for the about the relationship. It's def- and it's bound by promises and. Well, think about this one. A covenant is an attempt to a relationship. You know, DTR, those three letters that strike terror into the hearts of boyfriends everywhere. Honey, I think it's time we define the relationship. Oh, no! (laughs) Young men that never drank in their lives are suddenly going out and getting loaded because they have to have the DTR conversation. (laughs) Oh, no! But that's a covenant is a DTR. Define our relationship. The expectations for the relationship on both sides. The boundaries and responsibilities of the relationship. That's the covenant. And you could say that God has laid down the boundaries. He's DTR. For, he's had that DTR for us in the scriptures, and it's the new covenant. So we're going to talk about the new covenant. What, now, here's the question. Why is it new? What's new about the new covenant? Apparently, there was an old covenant, or a first covenant, as it says in Hebrews. Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And we will look at that question. We're celebrating the new covenant. By the way, the Bible is broken up into Old Testament, New Testament. Um, It's really, you could say, Old Covenant, New Covenant. First Covenant, New Covenant. It's the same idea, the Testaments. Okay, let's look at um, Hebrews chapter... Verse, starting verse 8. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. There it is. With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Hold on right there for just a second. So here's the situation. He says, this covenant will not be like the covenant made with their ancestors, which is talking about the old covenant with with the nation of Israel. It's going to be different. And the reason is because they did not remain faithful, and he turned away from them and established a new covenant. Okay, so see what I'm saying? What's what's new now? Now go on. Here's how we'll define that. In verse uh, 9, verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. By the way, this is a quote directly from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. It's also the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. So that's, that's an important piece of information, I think. 
I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's look at what's new in the new covenant. Marked by, by, by God's words, I will. Starting in verse 10, he says, I will put my laws in their minds. So, so there's the first one. I will put my laws in their mind. Write them on their hearts. Second is, I will be their God and they will be my people. And third of all is um, verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So we're going by the act of God. By the way, notice it's all God's initiative, God's action. That is called what? Grace. God does what we can't do. It's God's action. God comes to save us. God establishes a new covenant. He doesn't say, I will establish a new covenant when you do what you need to do. Boy, he'd be waiting a long time, wouldn't he? (laughs) It's all about his action here. First of all, God gives us people new hearts. He gives us people new hearts. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The great distinction of the new covenant is not just external, but it's internal power to understand and live for the Lord. All, you look at all that God requires of us in the Bible, and many times we come to a point of desperation saying, how could I possibly ever live this way? And of course the answer is what? You can't. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. How can I ever live this way? You can't. You're not. You won't. Why even try? Why could, well, you can make progress, though, because in the new covenant, there's a difference from the old. And that is called the Holy Spirit. A new heart, a new nature, new birth, unless a man be born again, born from above. Um, In Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church for the first time, we read in the last days, God says a quote from Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then he defines what it means by all people. He doesn't mean everybody, everywhere that ever lives is going to have the Holy Spirit. He talks about your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. He's saying all God's people will now be defined by having the Holy Spirit, having new hearts, the law written in their hearts. That's not the way it was. In the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. The Spirit came selectively for certain purposes. Did the Spirit come more than that? Perhaps, but we're not told. But now we know, and I love, um, I hope I brought it, here it is. I love what Tim Morgan said, not even knowing I was going to quote him, but he said, I know that the Spirit of the Lord is here because he resides in each of us. He couldn't have said that before Jesus came and before Jesus rose and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. He could have stood up in the synagogue and said, 
maybe some of us have the Holy Spirit when we have a special assignment. But he could not have said, I know that the Spirit of the Lord is here because he resides in each of us. But that's true now. As we read in Ephesians a few weeks ago, he talked about you having heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we read in Titus, when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, because of his mercy. It says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. New birth. So first of all, God gives us new hearts. How glad are you to have a new heart? Someone's compared it, I believe it was John Bunyan, to the law. The law made out the rules and said, okay, this is the law, now fly. But we didn't have wings. Whereas in the new covenant, God gives us wings and says, fly, but now we are renewed and empowered through the Spirit all people. Secondly, God gives his people new definition. Define the relationship, he redefines the relationship. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Back then, what was known to most people, there were some exceptions, was that nations, people groups, cities, regions had their own gods. Sometimes these were shared with others, but for the most part, you know, the Hebrews, by the understanding of those around them, had their God. And to believe in the Lord was, well, now I'm going to trust the God of the Jews, even though I'm not a Jew. I live over here, so I believe in the God of the valley. Sometimes they would have a God of the valley and a God of the hills, even if they were the same people. I mean, it was all about where you lived, and you kind of bunched together. Well, Jesus as if the Lord himself didn't change that, because remember that initially the God of Israel was the God of all. He created the heavens and the earth, as we talked about greatly last week. And we continue to realize that, that the intent of God was that the entire world would be changed by the covenant with Israel, which it was because they, he brought Jesus into the world. The old covenant was different. Jesus came, and it's for everybody. There's no ethnic definition. It's not a nation. Israel was a nation created to bring Jesus into the world, created to bring the Messiah, the Savior, through whom all, the, all families of the earth will be blessed. You know, in Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy. In Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He came from the right stock. He had a people through which the Messiah had to come. Some people of the old covenant people, some people of the nation of Israel and Judah later did know the Lord, and many didn't. Your, your, your status as a covenant person, your status as one of God's covenant children with the nation of Israel did not depend on whether or not you knew the Lord. It did not depend even on whether you carried out the sacrifices and the rituals. Knowing the Lord was always something different. God makes that very clear when he calls in Deuteronomy them to circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. And in many other places, he calls them to himself in a much more living way. But now, all of God's people know him. 
It's the establishment of a relationship with God through trusting Jesus Christ. As many as receive him, he gives the power, the authority, the right to become children of God who are born of God, born of the Spirit. Our relationship with him and having God as our father and we being his empowered, authorized children is our entrance into the new covenant people. There are no new covenant people walking around who don't know the Lord. There are no new covenant people walking around who do not have the Holy Spirit. That is the definition of how we become new covenant people. Totally different from the old way. The new is the fulfillment, the completion of the old. Thirdly, he gives his people a new slate. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Uh, Look with me just at Hebrews 10 for a minute. Flip a page or two over. By the way, Hebrews explains the Old Covenant and the relationship with the Old and New. If you're ever wondering on some of the things you read in the Old Testament, and if you're not, you're not honest, (laughs) um, read the book of Hebrews. It explains it so well. And I want to go to verse 3. I'm just picking little parts, but... These sacrifices, the sacrifices of, the, the, of Israel, are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There it is. Some of you say, I don't understand how we can be forgiven of our sins because we offer a goat. You can't. I don't understand why, why a lamb forgives. It doesn't. It never was meant to take away sins. It's a reminder. And hopefully, we'll produce a repentant heart so that we repent and receive real forgiveness of our sins. But it doesn't guarantee anything. You can offer a thousand goats a week and not be forgiven. And you can offer one goat and say, how terrible that, this, that I am guilty before God and this animal has to die in my place. Oh, Lord, please, I repent, forgive me. And you are forgiven. You know, it's a difference. But... Here's the good news. A verse, uh, second part of verse 9. He sets aside the first to establish the second. You see where I am, the second part of verse 9 there? And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for one all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And notice then he quotes the new covenant and talks about, quotes the part on um, their sins will be forgiven. He says in verse 18, when these have been forgiven, the sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Because Jesus paid it all, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine being God's covenant people and going through the sacrifices and the law and everything? Welcome to Maplewood Christian Church. We are so glad you've joined us. Now, was that nice, Tim? (laughs) I get the message. Um, where was I? 
Ravenna, yeah. Yeah. Well, bottom line is that the old covenant, you know, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, it says in Galatians. The law points us to Christ. The law doesn't save us, and we could not be forgiven. But imagine being, a, a, being Jewish and doing all those things, and you've never turned to the Lord for forgiveness. You just trust that if I just do these things, and the, you're not forgiven of your sins because you're offering, uh, offering a lamb and a goat. That doesn't take away sin. It never did. It never will. It never could. God never said it could. It covers it for a year. It keeps you in good covenant standing, and it reminds you, you need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Remember the new covenant. They will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. We bring you good news of great joy. The angel said, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. So God gives us a new slate, a new heart, a new relationship, and a new slate, forgiven. You're forgiven, child of God. That's, that's how you start off being a new covenant child. There's no non-forgiven new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. It's impossible for that to be the case. This is all new and this is all exciting. Awesome. How glad are you we're living the new covenant? I've had people say to me at times, boy, I, I read the Old Testament, I, get it. I wish I lived then. No, you don't. Are you crazy? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> because you, cause, cause you start reading the Old Covenant, you go, whew. I could never live that way. That's right. That was the whole point. You never lived that way. Now, Let's just quickly look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 38. We want to ask the question, how did the early church celebrate communion? Peter replied, this is at Pentecost. The, day, the, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. They've, they've had this great outbreak, and, and 3,000 people accept the Lord. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. Now remember, Pentecost sermon actually was more than we have written. It says many other words. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How'd you like to be in that service? <laughs> They devoted themselves, here's our part, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There it is. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Remember what I've been saying the last few weeks about your amazing response to Turkey and that one of the signs of an outpouring of the Spirit is generosity to those in need? That's why we're excited for your great response to the offering to help the, the Huffmans in Turkey because that's one of the signs of an outpouring of the Spirit. It was the first at the first outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and it remains. Go ahead to... Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let me um, <clears throat> look at this. Um, here's how they celebrated communion. First of all, it was the central purpose of meeting. Notice it says they devoted themselves, devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Here's what's so cool about this statement. Here's where the church devoted themselves. They did many things, but this is where they were devoted when they gathered. They made sure that they had the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And actually, what the way this reads, it's really cool. This is just, this is the Greek geek in me. But it, the way it actually reads is the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It's all, it's all parallel. In other words, when they came together, they had the prayers that they did and the breaking of bread. Sometimes people will debate whether the breaking of bread is eating a meal or communion. It probably hasn't involved both, but why do I believe it's communion? Because it's the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the prayer, the breaking of bread. It's the breaking of bread that is part of the gathering of the people, which is communion. It, it certainly would have to be considered that way. Powerful stuff. So it's one of the, that's one of the reasons I think it's to say we should do it every week. Well, I think there's a good case to be made for that. It doesn't command thou must have communion every week. But is it a good idea? It's a good idea. Yeah. And I don't come from a place where that's the way it was. What makes communion power? Oh, excuse me. It was a, a joyful practice. Notice it says that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It was joyful. They had glad hearts about communion. That Oh, my Bible flipped. I'm sorry. I'm trying to read where I'm not turned to. That is down in verse um, 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And sincere hearts, notice it says practice with a simple heart, not divided, distracted. You know, one of the purposes of communion is to... Focus us. The Lord's Supper should be like a laser beam. Here's who you are. Here's who God is. Here's what you are about. Here's the purpose of your life. Here's how you define yourself. Here's the cause for your life. Both individually and corporately. Communion is to bring us together. The word sincere, undivided, clear. And it was and still is an act of worship. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad hearts, and they were what? Praising, yes, the next slide. Praising God. Praising God. Amen. Amen. Communion is one of our, so that's how they celebrated communion. Now we're going to hear from Eric what makes communion powerful. Check one, two, there we go. All right, we're going to boogie, boogie through this back half of this sheet. Uh, there's a lot of content to it, but it's exciting because, yes, communion is powerful. 
But you're going to have those crazy pastors that are going to say things like communion's powerful. And so then the questions become, what makes it powerful and for what is it powerful? I'm going to tell you today about a threefold reason that it's powerful. Powerful not only for the body, but also for the soul, also for the spirit. Before we dive into this, I want to define those three terms for you. You can scribble the definitions down somewhere on uh, the blank space here. The body. I don't think anybody ever really struggles with what the body is, uh, but in this case, I'm not really talking about the group of us, but the individual, the shell that we carry around every day that aches a little bit sometimes, that creaks when we get up out of the chair. That's the body, you know? Okay, the soul and the spirit. Now those, sometimes people have a little bit of harder time defining the soul and the spirit. So to make it a little bit more clear for you, I would define the soul as one's mind, will, and emotions. The soul would be defined as one's mind, will, and emotions. Okay, Eric, but then how would you define a spirit? Can you actually do that? Well, we can take a good stab at it. And the stab that I would take is I would tell you that the spirit is comprised of one's underlying attitudes, deep convictions, and character traits. All right? Underlying attitudes, deep convictions, and character traits. That now in our knowledge base, what makes communion powerful? First and foremost, the sacrifice that backs it, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Who was that sacrifice for? Us. Hey, make it personal. Shout me real loud. It's for me. It's all right. Stand on that. That's personal. For God so loved me. Called me out. Said, Jesus, I got a plan for Eric and it's going to require you. And that applies to every single one of us here today. There's a sacrifice that backs it. We learn early on, it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. If you go to Isaiah 53, you look at verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Amen. Amen. Communion is powerful for the body in that Christ's body was broken for us. By his stripes, we are healed. Folks, when I take communion, I remember every time, week after week, I remember every time that that body that was crucified in my place where my sin should have landed me 
He did it for my healing. By his stripes, we are healed. Jump back into the Gospel of John if you're turning in your Bible and go to chapter 6. 635. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So I take that piece of bread every week and I think, by his stripes I'm healed. And then we break it, right? And you hear the snap of that little wafer reminding you that there was real brokenness. There was pain. There was suffering in the sacrifice. Jesus felt every lash. He endured pain on my behalf and said, I am the bread of life. What did he call us to? An abundant life, right? That means here and now. Abundant life. Not a life of tiredness, not a life of weakness, not a life of being ravaged with sin, but a life of abundance and power in the name of Jesus. And he said, take this bread and eat it. I'm the bread of life. The bread of abundant life. Communion is powerful for your physical body. Amen? Communion is powerful for your soul. Go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Start in verse 6, actually. It says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, his own love for us. Oop, I skipped a line. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Probably, perhaps, one of the most powerful verses right here. While we were still sinners, <laughs> Christ died for us. Christ died for us. My mind, it, it wants to sin sometimes. I don't know about y'all, but my mind can get mean real quick. Yeah. <laughs> the mind can get real mean. It can get mean toward other people. It can get mean toward me. And that's a struggle. And you realize that when your mind starts going down that road, that your mind is part of your soul. Your will. It's not that I want to go on sinning, but the things that I want to do, I struggle to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I so easily fall into. Hmm, that sounds familiar, right? Yes. Truth. 
truth. We call that, I call that the wretched man syndrome. I fall into this pattern of, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it anyway. No, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. It's the conflict of my mind, my will, and my emotions, my soul getting in the way. But Jesus died for my soul. He said, boy, I'm going to save that soul of yours. I'm going to redeem you every day, wake you up, breathe breath of life into you, call you out of the sinful nature, wake you up, tell you, shape up, kid. I died for you. He cares about our soul. He has a desire for us. And that's why even when we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. Go quickly to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. <laughs> I, don't, I don't honestly think that we can even begin to comprehend that scripture. We, we, can, we can look at it and try, but we can't begin to comprehend the riches of God's grace lavished on us. Couldn't begin to. It's too great, too powerful for me to understand. But it's powerful. Communion is a time that should renew us at our soul level. We hear that in the bread, and it's a reminder to the mind it's a reminder to the will. It's a reminder to the emotions of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Finally, it's powerful. Communion's powerful for our spirit. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <laughs> Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Remember when I said my mind gets mean sometimes? <laughs> oh, and then here comes my Bible. Whap! Boy, take those thoughts captive. Yes, in the name of Jesus, take those thoughts captive. Communion is powerful to our spirits because it is a weapon, folks. Yes? Amen? 
communion is a weapon. We have to understand how to wage war with it. When we come into the church house on Sunday mornings and we gather together and we begin to sing, what does our praise become? A weapon. Our praise becomes a weapon. Right? I raise my hand in worship. And who falls when I raise that hand? My adversary has to crumble because the power of God Most High is being exalted. And so the enemy can't stand because the weapons that we are using week after week and day after day in our own lives. You want to talk about best weapon I ever heard of the name of Jesus come on the name of Jesus something comes up in the road oh God how am I going to get through this roadblock y'all have heard me preach enough times you know that I'm that faith preacher that says stick out your hand and you talk to that mountain crumble now in the name of Jesus amen yes Our weapons aren't the weapons of the world. We're not going to take out a sword and fight. You know what our sword looks like? It looks like it's got two edges. It looks like it's got a first covenant and a second covenant and a leather binding on it. And I'm going to pull it out of that sword sheath and I'm going to throw it around and I'm going to wage war when the enemy tries to attack. Why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus for me and for you. And when we sit down and we begin to meditate on communion, we have to be ready to break that little wafer and understand that the war is won. Amen? Come on, get excited over that. The war is won. Because of that sacrifice that was made. Come on. Yes. Yes. There's power for our spirit. The words that we use here are spiritual warfare. Let me tell you, folks, if you've ever endured spiritual warfare at its deepest, And if you haven't, take it from me. It really does affect you physically. It absolutely can. But God gave us weapons. Praise is a weapon. Prayer is a weapon. The name of Jesus is a weapon. The ordinance of communion is a weapon. Break that bread. Drink that cup. But do it with intentionality, understanding that it's powerful for your body. It's powerful for your soul. It's powerful for your spirit. God doesn't do things unintentionally. In our Torah study on Wednesday evenings, we look at all these laws that that God's laying out. Right now we're um, midway through the book of Exodus. And we're looking at all these laws that God's laying out for his children. And it's like, my goodness, this is so precise. It's so intentional. It's so exact. That's God. 
precise and intentional and exact. And let me tell you, when Jesus stood before his disciples and and created this ordinance for us to remember 2,000 years later, there was something intentional to it. It wasn't just this, eh, take a bite of the bread and take a sip of the juice and call it good. No. No, 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 no. There's something deep here, folks. Said, get ready. This life that you're going to live is going to be a life that looks like war, but be assured I have won that war. I have won that war. Right? He holds the keys. He won the victory. Your job is to walk in power, kids. Amen? We demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions that are set up against the knowledge of God. And when the mind gets mean and tries to play a trick on you, it's the name of Jesus that takes that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Run to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. And I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Does God want unity with you and me? Yes. What do we call it when we come and and participate in oneness? with the Spirit of God. I call it communion. I call it communion with God. A time to come and let our spirits be one together. Split the word apart. I want something in common with God, and I want that thing that we have in common to be our union. So I come into communion with God. And that's where we're going to start turning this now, is whether we're going to partake or experience. But real quick, stay in Romans. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Mm-hmm. Just, just that second half here of, of verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. If you make that more personal, the Spirit himself testifies within me in my own spirit, that I am a child of God. Your perspective when you read scripture changes everything. If you read it personally, you're going to take it personally. But if you read it as something that was once said to a group of people at one time, then you'll take it 
as something that was once said to a group of people at one time. This is the living word of God, alive for us today. When we come into a time of communion, we have to expect power. I'm going to say that again because that amen was weak. When we come into a time of communion, we have to expect power. Yes, we have to expect power. It's got to move us because it's so much more than a wafer and a swig of juice. This is an ordinance that Jesus Christ established at the Passover of all times. He says, kids, I like it when Jesus says that. Kids, this is a time that we remember our liberation. And I'm here to finalize that once and for all. So guess what? Take this bread, take this cup, and stand on my promises and stand in my power. You're no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to strongholds. You're no longer a slave to the pretensions. You're no longer a slave to the arguments that stand against the knowledge of God. You're a child of God, and you are a powerful because you're washed in my blood, amen? Stand in the power. Stand in the power. So now the question is this, and I hope you can answer this without looking at your notes sheet by this point. Do we partake or do we experience communion? Yes. Yes. That's exactly how I answer it. Except if you look at the, if you look at the handout, I answer it with a question. Do we partake or do we experience? The answer with the question is this. Are we disciples? Yes. Do we partake or experience? Yes, both. Here's what I want to challenge you with today. We're going to get ready to receive communion. But I want to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And I'm going to read this kind of slowly, a little methodically, because I want you to think this out. And while you're thinking it out, while you're, while you're listening to these words, up to you if you want to close your eyes, if you want to leave your eyes open. But I want you to put yourself at this table. Okay? See yourself here. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve and me. Okay, think on that. Throw yourself in there. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. I started here so that maybe you could feel the trouble of that statement. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, 
Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, notice the intentionality, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's coming back. Were you there? Did you put yourself in that situation? Did you sit at the table for a moment and hear him teach this? Did you feel something? In the past several years, our world has experienced weird things, right? Maybe that's an understatement. But one of the unique things to the past several years is the scatteredness of the church. Okay, There was a season, if you recall, that we weren't allowed per se, to gather. And so we didn't gather. We had Zoom meetings. We had Facebook Live. We had YouTube. We had all of these different ways of connecting. And at one point, probably about midway through that shutdown, the Lord had impressed on my heart to do a Facebook Live communion conference. I'm nobody. I'm just a small town preacher, country kid. I have 200 and some Facebook friends. But I really felt like God was saying, lead my people to remember me. And so I was like, okay. It's one of those things where you know what God's telling you to do and, and at the same time, while you know what he's saying, you're like, 
How am I going to accomplish this? What do you want me to do? And so I made like flyers and hung them in stores, put it on Facebook, sent emails out. Hey, on this night at this time, tune into Facebook. We're going to have communion together. I didn't know what it was going to look like. If you've ever done Facebook Live, there's a little red box with a number in the corner that tells you how many people are watching. And um, I was amazed because nobody from small town USA is standing before a computer screen with a cup and a wafer and 800 other people joined together to receive the body and blood of Christ. That's our God. That's God's power. The most I could have possibly known was 200 people. I wish I could have a list of names of people that joined in that night. But in a world that was riddled with desperation, they turned to God. Why communion? Because there was power in it. There was power. I'm saying that wrong. There is power in communion. This morning, just like we do week after week, we have the opportunity to join one another in receiving communion. So I'm going to ask you just to take out your cup and to pull out your wafer for a moment. And just look at the wafer. Understanding that it's a symbol, but there's something powerful to it. As you look at it, think about the life that was laid down for you. Think about the body of your loving Savior that was crucified for you. Think about the sinless life he led and yet stood in your place for every sin you would ever commit. Think about every lash across his back. Now, this sounds solemn and it sounds sad. But now, as you think about these things, think about the victory that he won for you by doing this. Think about the freedom that he has given you. Think about all of the things that you don't have to endure because Jesus did. Let's bless our bread. Father, now in the name of Jesus, we thank you 
Oh, Lord, we thank you for the body that was broken for us. Lord, just as you have called us to do this often in remembrance of you, Father, right now, right now, call to our remembrance your sacrifice. Call to our remembrance the victory won. Father, that in this partaking, we would rejoice because your Holy Spirit is here with us now. Father, bless this, that as we partake, we would receive the power for healing in our bodies, that we would receive the power for healing in our souls, for liberation in our souls, that we would receive the power for healing in our spirits and the power to proclaim the victory because your spirit testifies within us that we are your children. Father, set us to rejoicing this morning as you meet us in this place, as we proclaim your death in the way that you've commanded us to. Until you come, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen. amen. Now before you partake, I want you to do this. Look at somebody beside you and tell them, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And as we take the cup, the new covenant in Jesus' blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> I want to do the same thing. We used to do this when we passed them, but now we, we don't. But look again to that same person and say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Heavenly Father, you've been so good to give us something so tangible to remember, so tangible to um, draw us back, focus us on Jesus, on you and on the work of your spirit in our lives, the new covenant. Father, thank you so much for allowing us as your people to experience the power of coming together in Jesus' name through the spirit before our Father to dine together, to celebrate together 
Lord, I pray that this will help us as we go on, that every week as we take communion, we will always stop and remember, ask the question, why are we doing this? Remind us as we come next week even, and the week after, and the week after, why we take communion. What's so special? How can this transform our lives? Because you meant it to be something that is a vital part of discipleship, a vital part of the work of the church, the unity, power, and ministry of the church. And now as we um, prepare to leave and have a song to sing and, a, and prayer time, we, we pray that we'll continue in this spirit of remembering and experiencing your power, partaking of the, the great love. I will. And because you said I will, we are. Thank you. Amen.